About two years ago, February of 2015, we had what we called a 2020 Vision Summit. And so do the math, 2015 to, 20, to the year 2020, how many years is that? I'm holding up my hand here. You've got to get this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, this is an easy question. And so then we identified five areas of focus for the next five years. And that's uh, our, our 2020 vision has to do with outreach, discipleship, None of, none of this is, you know, it's all pretty standard stuff, but it's important. this is where we've got to focus. Outreach, discipleship, intergenerational ministry, diversity, and stewardship. Then we asked the question, uh, can we kind of resource these out of our normal way that we resource everything else around here? Or is there a faith element here that goes beyond that? And we answered that question in a way that took, took a while. We, we feel like we prayed about that and discerned God's best, and we said, yes, we, we need to go beyond. And then we asked the question of, can we do that with just kind of ourselves, or do we need some help with that? And we again did a process of discernment, and then we voted that we need some help, and this is Mark Rieke. Come on up, Mark. Uh, I wanted to just set you up in that way so people know why you are here this morning. And this is really the the only Sunday that he will be here, uh, and he asked for a Sunday, and this is the Sunday that we came up with, and uh, our you know, the, the whole thing will um, climax in, in May, late May, so, um, but this will fit in. Next week, we'll be back into our series on the Gospel of Mark. Mark, Mark, next week, Mark, how's that? Yeah. All right, Mark, take it away. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark, and thanks to all of you for being um, uh, willing to entertain my presence this morning. I appreciate that. Uh, Much of my work is behind the scenes with your leadership team, but it's so nice to be with you in worship on this Sunday. So how good it is to be here, and I thank you for letting me in and giving me a little bit of time. Some of you will remember me, perhaps, if you were here eight years ago in this congregation, when I came to do some presentations for you. You weren't ready for a project at that time, but thankfully you remembered me and you called me back, your leadership team called me back about a year ago and wanted a little bit more conversation and that's unfolded over the course of the last year to this point where you're now stepping into a capital fund campaign for the sake of ministry here at Pine Lake Covenant Church and you've invited me to help you organize and guide that work as you unfold it here. So thanks for that. I know that when you are faced with a guest speaker it is natural to have a couple of questions. First of all, who is this guy? Secondly, is he any good? And third and most important, how long is he going to talk? Gosh. All right, so I can answer two of the three for you. I got to take, is he any good off the table? That's for all of you to decide at the the end of this morning, all right? In terms of how long, I thank you for the time in worship today. We're going to take about 35 minutes, so it's a little bit more of an extended presentation this morning, and I appreciate your willingness there, just so you know kind of where we're headed. In terms of who I am... I'll offer a little bit of introduction. My name is Mark Rieke, and I serve on behalf of the Enrichment Group. We're a consulting team that works exclusively with Christian churches and faith-based nonprofits in capital fund development, meaning we help them raise money typically for new programs of ministry or for building projects. That's our calling. My original professional calling in life was as a public educator. 
Bachelor's and master's degrees come from Pacific Lutheran University in classroom education, educational psychology, and then educational administration. So for a number of years, I taught junior high and high school and then served as a high school principal for, for a while. Uh, I got into a doctoral program believing that God's call to me was to become a school superintendent. Turns out that really wasn't God's call to me. Uh, but serendipitously, I got involved with this work about 16 years ago. And it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to serve in the church in ways that are compatible, hopefully, with the gifts and skills that God has given me. So I consider this still education. It's just stewardship education, I guess, if you will. So thanks for letting me in uh, on, on that score. Home and our offices are in the Tacoma area, so it was nice just to drive up the road on a mostly sunny morning uh, to see all of you uh, today. And I appreciate the good work that I get a chance to do with your leadership team, your campaign leadership team. Brad Board is your uh, campaign chair, and many people operating with him to help unfold and actualize this capital fund campaign in your midst. In terms of who am I from a stewardship perspective, that's really what I'd like to share more of with you so that you have some idea of where I come from when I talk with congregations and with people about the idea of Christian stewardship. And to unfold that story, I've got to take you back in time. Back in time, uh, 31 years now, to that point where I was coming out of PLU with my undergraduate teaching degree. And at that point in my, my, my young life, I was seeking three things. I wanted a job, obviously. I needed a place to live. And because I'd been blessed to be raised in a Christian household, I was seeking my first adult church to join. All right? So I got a job at Tahoma High School in Maple Valley. I found an apartment to rent near Lake Meridian in Kent, and on recommendation of a friend from college, I stumbled into the back pew of Zion Lutheran Church on East Hill. And as a single man at that time uh, in that congregation, I was completely invisible. They didn't know what to do with a single guy who wandered into church. Uh, So they just let me sit in the back and hang out and worship, all right? Now, I remember that when uh, the offering was taken and the plate would come my way, I would very dutifully reach in my pocket and see what I had to give. And sometimes it was a few bills, sometimes it was loose pocket change, sometimes it wasn't a whole lot more than pocket lint, but you know, whatever I had, I pulled out and I put in the plate and passed it on. I never really gave it much thought. I knew that I was supposed to give something, but hadn't, hadn't really given a whole lot of thought. Well, the months went on, I joined the church, and it was right after I joined that the pastor of that congregation came to me and he said, you know what, we're starting a capital fund campaign. This capital fund campaign is going to raise money for new classrooms for Christian education. We've got a lot of young families coming to this church and kids. We don't have a place to do Christian ed, so we're going to raise money for those things. And I'd love it if you would get involved in our campaign. And specifically, I would love it if you'd go out and talk with other members of our congregation and share with them your stewardship story. <laughs> and I thought, wow, Pastor, you haven't been paying attention. I'm, I'm the guy who sits in back of church and rummages around in his pocket for spare change. I really don't think I'm your guy. Felt a little bit like these folks walking out of church talking to their pastor. They say, are we glad to hear you don't know where you'll get the money you need? For a moment there, we were afraid you wanted to get it from us. <laughs> I was really in a bit of a quandary. Why are you talking to me about this? Well, obviously, that pastor was a wise man. He knew that for me as a young man at that point, this was an area of my life that I could, I could benefit from, I could grow a little bit in. 
So I remember saying to him, I said, you know, you, you've piqued my interest, but before I can commit to anything, I need to get my head straight on this. So help me out. So what he did was he, was he gave me a series of Bible texts to take a look at. And you've actually got those texts on the handout. Uh, if you look on the back side of one of them, it says All Church Stewardship Bible Study Texts. So we're going to project those, but you can also see these uh, as we, we kind of walk through those. He put those texts in my hand and he said, read these, think on them, pray on them, and then come back to me. So I said, okay, that, that I can do. We've got some extras coming around here as well if you didn't get one. So I said, I can, I can take that on. So the first text that I came to was this one out of Leviticus. It says, a tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. And actually, if you read the text where the ellipsis marks are there, the dot, 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 it articulates what everything means. Everything really means everything. It's a tithe of, the, of your household, of the crops of your field, you know, so on and so forth. It's everything. And I, again, because I've been blessed to be raised in a Christian household, remembered that the term tithe literally means 10%. 10% of what God blesses us with we're called to return in thanksgiving. I also remember my mother putting a positive spin on it and saying, you know, with the tithe, 90% of what God gives us, we get to keep. That was nice of mom to put it that way. I have to admit to you, though, that when I re-encountered this text as a young man 30-some years ago, it was a hard pill to swallow. Clearly, I was nowhere near tithing. I was the most unintentional, unconscious giver there was. And so this notion was really difficult for me to think about. I kind of wanted to whittle it down a little bit, like this Wizard of Id cartoon that shows the uh, town friar talking to the king, and he says, you know what? Some people give one-tenth of their income to the church. The king says, no kidding? Tell you what, I'll double that. Put me down for a twentieth. <laughs> I really wanted to negotiate that down just a little bit. That 10%, that was, uh, that was a long way off for me at that point in my life. Well, I pressed on, though. I came to this next text here from Deuteronomy. <clears throat> it says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is God who gives you the power to get wealth. Okay, true confessions. At this point in my life, this text didn't help me one bit. In fact, I was offended. I thought, now come on, aren't I the one who just landed a decent teaching job? Aren't I the one going to work every day and making a paycheck? What is this? Well, of course, it was a necessary reminder. It's God who had given me the time, the health, the skills to be about productive work and to earn a living. That was God's doing, not mine. I was simply acting on the gifts and skills that God had first given me. But I pressed on. Next text, this one from Proverbs. And in here I saw a little glimmer of hope. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Now here there was an uh, an implication of something happening in response to our giving. And I saw it again in this text from Malachi chapter 3. Bring the full tithes into my storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thus put me to the test, says the Lord God of hosts. See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour down upon you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Wow. The first thing that jumped out at me in this text was the line, put me to the test. 
my recollection in studying scripture was that usually God says, don't test me, just do it. Here he says, put me to the test and see what will happen. And I also remember going back to my pastor and checking on this. I said, this sounds just a little bit fishy. What's going on in this text? He made it clear this is not intended to be interpreted as a theology of prosperity. By that I mean it's not like if you give enough, you're going to get the new Mercedes, right? It's not that kind of transactional giving. But rather he said, be mindful, pay attention to blessings that happen when we commit. I had no idea what that meant at that time, by the way. But he said that to me. I remember that. Someone else had shared with me a story about the blessings of tithing that maybe took a little bit of the edge off of it. They told the story of two guys stranded on a desert island. And the first man is beside himself with worry. He says, oh my gosh, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. What's going to happen to us? And the other guy very calmly just kicks back against a palm tree and says, don't worry about it. I make $100,000 a week. The first guy says, wow, you're kind of crazy. This is a bad situation. No food, no water. What's going to happen to us? The other guy says, don't worry about it. I make $100,000 a week. Finally, the first guy in exasperation just about loses it and says, you are out of your mind. We are in the middle of nowhere. No one will find us. We are going to die. And the other guy says, look, I make $100,000 a week. I tithe to my church. I guarantee you, my pastor will find us. <laughs> I don't think those are the blessings that Malachi had in mind, but <clears throat> just in case, just in case. So some connection between our giving and what happens in our life. And again, that was, was yet to be revealed to me. Saw it again in this text out of Luke. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, you know, I thought on these texts... And I thought that my objective was to figure out what my commitment would be, my financial commitment. So I puzzled it out, and I put pencil to paper, and I determined two things that I wanted to do in that campaign 30 years ago. I wanted to ultimately become a tither to the church, and I had a plan to get there over you know, several years to kind of ramp up to tithing, if you will. And above and beyond that, I wanted to make a commitment of $5,000 to the church building campaign. And that second part scared me to death. I had no idea where 5000 bucks was coming from at that point in my life. All right? But I thought, that must be the right answer. So I went back to my pastor and I, I said, okay, guess what? I'm all in. I felt a little bit like this cartoon of the guy coming out of church, stripped down to nothing but his boxer shorts. That was the best sermon on stewardship I've ever heard, he says. I was a little bit exposed, right? A little bit vulnerable uh, in this. And I said, I want to become a tither ultimately, and I want to make a gift of $5,000. And I remember my pastor looked at me and he said, that's nice. <laughs> I thought, that's nice. Holy smokes, I'm out here. I, you know, I've really gone through a lot to get to this point, and that's nice. And he said, I want you to understand something. This campaign really isn't about your money. This campaign is about your faith. And I remember looking at him kind of dumbly and I said, well, yeah, I get it. It's about the church, right? And he said, no, it's about your faith. Your investment in the faith is first. What happens in terms of how you respond to that, that's the second part. So you kind of got him out of order. It's about your faith.
And he lifted up this text for me from Matthew chapter 6. You know this one really well. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Amen. This, thank you, this understanding of where we invest in our faith life first, that's the first priority. Well, that was the beginning of a learning and of a journey that I'm still on to this day. I've had many opportunities in my life just like you to revisit that and to think on, what does that mean for me now? Specifically in the life of Zion Lutheran, while I was a member of that congregation, they engaged in four more capital campaigns, by the way, uh, and I had the chance to you know, visit that on a regular basis as well as with other charitable giving opportunities in my life. And what a blessed journey that is. And I thank you for the listening ears to that part of the story so far because I hope it gives you some idea of where I'm coming from when I talk with you a little bit about stewardship. And I want to take it the next step with you and explore another piece of text, a really good text for us here today. And that's on the back side of that sheet. It's Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, Many of you know was a great nurturer of the early Christian church. But Paul also had a lot to say about Christian stewardship. So if you read his letters, there's a lot of good information in there about how we might think about this act of Christian stewardship. The Second Corinthians text I've chosen for a couple of reasons. One, because it really does speak to sort of a special appeal that was going on at that time that Paul was putting forward. It was an appeal on behalf of the Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who had fallen on hard times due to a historic famine and also due to the ongoing persecution of early Christians. So Paul has reached out to the churches that he visits in his travels, and he's asking them, would you provide funds, essentially, to support your Christian brothers and sisters in, in Jerusalem? Paul mentions this to the Corinthian church in his first letter. He now comes back in 2 Corinthians, and he's revisiting that ask or that appeal, if you will. And he gives them some good guidance for thinking about giving. It's also an appropriate text because guess what? The Corinthian church was planted in an area of relative affluence, commerce, culture, the arts, not unlike the Sammamish Plateau, by the way, or the greater Puget Sound area. So this text actually speaks really well, I think, to us. And in this text, Paul is reflecting to the Corinthians on his travels with the Macedonian churches, and he's again renewing this appeal for them to get involved. A couple of you have volunteered to read. I thank you for that. Uh, Dave, could I call you up to the microphone here? And Dave's going to share with us 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 1 through 7. Is that right? That's Does right. that sound familiar? Good. <laughs> I'm glad. Thank you for the reading. That's great. Thank you. 2 Corinthians uh, 8 verses 1 through 7. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means, and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly to allow them the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. And this, not merely as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us, so that we might urge Titus 
that since he had already made a beginning, so he should also complete this generous undertaking among you. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. Thank you, Dave. appreciate that. So here Paul opens it up just a little bit. He reflects on his uh, contacts with the Macedonian churches. And the first thing we learn is that the Macedonian churches, by comparison to the Corinthian church, are relatively impoverished. He talks about their severe ordeal of affliction and their poverty. All right? But he says some things that characterize the Macedonian church's giving. So he talks about these things. First of all, he says that they gave according to their blessings, meaning their gifts were proportionate to the base of resource that God had blessed them with. This is an important concept to think about in capital fund work and in general stewardship uh, you know, in the life of our church. We oftentimes use the phrase, not equal gifts, but equal generosity. Not equal gifts, but equal generosity. What does that mean? It means that God blesses each one of us uniquely, with some modicum of uh, financial resource and calls us to respond as we've been blessed. Think of it this way. If everybody here at Pine Lake Covenant truly tithed, gave 10% of their income, the dollar amounts would be very different, right? Because they'd be based on different household incomes, yet the measure of sacrifice or commitment would be equitable, the 10%. So here Paul says the Macedonian Christians represented that. They gave according to their blessings. But he also says they gave above and beyond. They gave even beyond their means to this uh, appeal. And that has application for you here at Pine Lake because your capital campaign invites financial gifts above and beyond your regular offering. It's not in place of the regular offering. It does no good to raise money for capital needs and not be able to run the church day to day, right? So it's not taking money from the regular offering. These are gifts above and beyond in addition to your uh, regular offering. Paul tells us that the Macedonian churches gave freely. They gave voluntarily. He didn't have to twist arms or guilt them. They wanted to participate. In fact, so much that they gave urgently. Look at the line in there where it says, begging us earnestly for the privilege of participating in this collection for the saints. Now, on a show of hands, how many of you in your last stewardship appeal went to your leadership team and begged to be involved? (laughs) Nobody? Yeah. Okay, yeah, typically in stewardship appeals, we're really happy just to sit back and, yeah, okay, I get it, thank you. You know, someone else can do this, or I'll just wait for the next wave kind of thing. Here, Paul is telling us that the Macedonian Christians were so on fire for this opportunity that they begged him to be involved. And, of course, the thing that that they did that was so impressive to Paul was that they got it. Unlike me 30 years ago, they got it. This was a faith venture. They committed first to God and then showed that in the way that they gave. So they gave themselves first to the Lord. One of the interesting things that Paul lifts up, oops, I keep doing that, uh, that uh, Paul lifts up in, in this text is that he calls the Macedonian Christians generous even though they had very little. And he says their poverty, coupled together with their joy for giving, yielded generosity. That's a really interesting notion because oftentimes we kid ourselves and we say, you know what, I would just give more if I just had more. 
And the reality is, no, the heart of generosity comes from a very different place. I'm going to give you a real-time example of that. One of the things that I did as an exercise with your campaign leadership team uh, early in the process was just ask them to anonymously, no names, just anonymously, write down the amount of their annual household income and then write down the total of their annual gifts to the church. I took those numbers and I just ran some percentages for them. What I found is a very typical pattern. Some of the most, in fact, most of the larger percentage gifts, meaning the bigger percentage gifts of household income to the church, came from people who were below the average income level of that test group. Meaning, it really had very little to do with how much you made. It had to do with the heart of sacrifice that was involved in the giving. So the heart of generosity comes from a very, very different place, and Paul reminds us of that. We're going to hear a little bit more of the text, and Kristen, could I call you forward? And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 8. It goes 8 to 24, though there are some verses that I've taken out, but uh, 2 Corinthians 8, starting at verse 8. Okay, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 15 and 24. I do not say this command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I am giving my advice It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Now to finish doing it, so that in our eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and the pressure on you, but it is a question of fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there there may, may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and our reason for boasting about you. Thank you, Kristen. So a couple of things to lift up out of this section of text. Paul tells the Corinthians that he is not commanding them to give. This is not a requirement, nor is it a requirement of any of you. But he does say it's to test the genuineness of their love. Well, what does that mean exactly? Another show of hands, this one should be relatively simple for you. How many of you have ever been in love? If you're seated next to your spouse, raise them high. Goes much better that way. All right, yes. Okay. Yeah, when you're in love, what do you do? Well, you dedicate yourself entirely to that person. You give freely of all that you have for the sake of the love that you have for that individual. Now, Paul's not talking about romantic love in this text, right? He's talking about Christian love, agape love. But it's the same concept. He's suggesting to the Corinthians that that which you say you love, you're going to commit to. You say you love something, you're going to show it, right? Martin Luther talked about three conversions. There was the conversion of the head, there was the conversion of the heart, and finally there was the conversion of the wallet or the pocketbook, right? And guess which one was the hardest conversion? (laughs) Yeah. Luther suggested it's one thing to say, Lord, I, I, I believe, another to say, Lord, I love you, and then another to say, Lord, I put it into action in the way that I witness, serve, and give. 
that was the hardest conversion to make, if you will. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, that which you say you love, it's going to show itself. It's going to manifest itself in the way that you serve and the way that you give. And then there's this text in there that talks about the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Now here Paul's not talking about, again, any financial transaction. Here he's reminding the Corinthians that this really is based in the life-giving sacrifice of Christ. Christ, though he had all things, could have had all things as the Son of God, yet chose to come into this world and for our sakes give all of that up, even to death on a cross, so that we might inherit life eternal. What an incredible message. Here I suggest to you that the New Testament message of the Christ-like model of sacrifice blows the lid off the Old Testament notion of tithe, 10%. All right? Tithing is pretty legalistic. 10%, you're good. Check the box. We're done. The Christ-like model of sacrifice really just explodes that, really expands that significantly when you think about it. It's interesting, too, that in the New Testament, the tithe, I believe, is only referred to once, and Christ does that sort of in a backhanded way. He says, you who would tithe household herbs, dill and cumin, yet you'd forget the bigger issues of love and mercy and justice, you've kind of missed the boat, all right? So again, he's saying, think more expansively. This isn't about restricted thinking. This is about what has God given you in your life and how are you willing to use it? That whole life response, if you will, to the message of God. And Christ is the model of that kind of sacrifice. Think of the text where um, the rich young ruler encounters Christ and says, what must I do to follow you? And Jesus says, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you can come and follow me. And, of course, the man goes away sad. He doesn't get it. Uh, But really, Christ is saying that's really what the call is. The call is to be ready to sacrifice all for the sake of ministry and of love of Christ. So, interesting concepts for us. Let's get one more reader. Pastor Mark, would you be willing to read uh, a little bit more text for us, if you would? We're going to go over to 2 Corinthians 9, and we're going to start in verse 6. So, where it says the point is this, that's where we're going to start and go from there to the end. Thank you. Okay. The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with everything, with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may Share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, God scatters abroad and gives to the poor with righteousness that endures forever. God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that has been given to you. 
Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Thank you, Mark. A couple of verses to lift up out of this section. First of all, what stewardship appeal could exist without quoting this well-worn scripture? You can say it with me. God loves a... And we say it just that cheerfully, too, don't we? God loves a cheerful giver. This is probably one of the most abused texts out there, quite honestly, because it's misunderstood. The implication is I have to give and I have to act like I like it, too. I'm going to give you an alternate translation that I really think speaks to the heart of the matter here. This translation, God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. Here's the point. Guess what? God doesn't need your money. God needs you. And there's an understanding that our giving helps deepen the relationship that God keeps with us. God provides us with all things in abundance, calls us to respond with giving in thanksgiving, and in so doing, we bind ourselves more deeply in that relationship that God has in mind for us. That's the point. Yes, your ministries need resource to do God's work in this world, but ultimately God doesn't need your money. He needs you. But God understands this is one of the ways that we deepen relationship. And God wants you to find joy in that relationship. So God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. Keep that one uh, in, tucked away in your mind. And this phrase, you will be rich enough to be generous. That's an alternate translation of verse 11. I love this text because you get to call yourself rich and generous in the same sentence. It's kind of nice, right? Notice that Paul does not say you will be wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. Again, it's not a theology of prosperity. But Paul clearly underscores God's provision. God will always provide. You will always have enough to be generous on every occasion. Pretty amazing stuff. So we'll start to sum things up just a little bit here. First of all, I hope you hear in all of this that everything that you have and ever will have, everything that you are and ever will be, is a gift from God. Amen. The question before you in this season again is, how do you want to respond? How do you want to live into that understanding? What's the discernment for you? You have before you an incredible capital campaign. And I want to say again, thank you to your campaign leadership team. They are doing incredible work on your behalf to bring this campaign to life. And to date, we have nearly 100 people in your congregation actively doing some aspect of the campaign. That's phenomenal. So it's not just one or two people. It's a lot of folks getting asked to do things and stepping up and saying yes. If you have not been called yet to serve in some way, don't worry, you will be. Uh, There's a a place for everybody in this, all right, and we'd love everyone to get involved with this. But your Accelerate the Vision, as Pastor Mark pointed out, grows out of your 2020 vision process a couple of years ago. This is now time to bring it to life, to put resources together to help actualize these components that you have in your vision. And it's all about strengthening ministry. It's all about doing better what you already do and exploring new ways to be able to do outreach in your community and to welcome people into God's love here at Pine Lake Covenant Church. That looks like three things in particular. One, it looks like reducing the mortgage debt that you have as a congregation so that the dollars that are currently being spent on paying the mortgage can be spent on ministry instead. So it's ministry expansion through debt reduction. 
Secondly, it looks like revitalizing and repurposing some of your facilities to be able to serve better in the way that uh, you want to now. For example, I saw today during the gather time over in your gym what you call the kitchen over there. It looked like a sink and a refrigerator to me. Uh, so I think one of your projects is to, uh, is to repurpose that kitchen, get it to be fully functioning so that you can do hosted groups, so that you can have uh, community organizations come in and use that space, again, for the sake of ministry. That's just an example. And the third element of your campaign is to make a tithe gift, 10%, off of the proceeds of your capital fund campaign for the work of mission regionally and globally. So you're not only doing work here in your community, but you're doing work beyond. What a great calling and what a great opportunity. You're going to hear more about that in the coming weeks, but that's a really broad overview of what your campaign is about. At the end of the process, in May, you're going to be invited to make a special financial commitment above and beyond regular offering, and you'll have up to three years to complete that commitment. So it's a three-year capital fund campaign. What am I asking you to do today? Well, you should have guessed from my opening introductory remarks that with my background as a public educator, I'm going to give you homework, okay? So, so here it comes, and hopefully it's easy, gracious homework. The first thing is, take a look at the sheet that accompanied those text sheets in your handouts today. That's a study guide, and we talked about some of those things in our, uh, in our time together this morning. But take that away and spend time at home or over lunch or, or, or whatever makes sense for you this coming week and, uh, and look at those, uh, those questions and ponder this text a little bit more. I also encourage you to take a look at the teachings of Jesus. Nearly a third of the parables and teachings of Christ have to do with issues of wealth, inheritance, and money. So Jesus had a whole lot of good guidance for us in terms of how we might think about that financial resource piece in our lives. So give that some thought as well. I also want to encourage you to engage in the Bible studies that are going on through your life groups. Thank you to Lauren Gustafson for coordinating those. If you're not a part of a life group and you'd like to participate, boy, have we got a spot for you. Uh, Lauren or Pastor Sharon or Pastor Mark, they'll find a spot for you and hook you up uh, with someone so you can do a little bit more study. Spending time in God's Word is really important. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Get involved. If you're not already serving in some aspect of the campaign, please find a way to, to help out. It's easy work, and the more people who do it, it's the old adage of many hands make light work. Uh, it really does, uh, does in, uh, inspire one another to do it coll collaboratively, so I appreciate that. Get involved also with the accelerator gatherings that Sandy Hare was talking about earlier in the announcement. Those are meetings, small group meetings, for the purposes of information about the campaign. There'll be time for food and fellowship, time for information. There's going to be a tremendous DVD that Larry Burke has put together on your behalf to see. It's a great piece to, to, to view. Uh, and there'll be time then for dialogue and questions. Those meetings are not financial commitment meetings. That means if you go, you're not going to see a pledge card. Okay? They're just a time to come together and get information. So please sign up for those. Make sure that you pray throughout this process as well. Pray for God's calling and God's voice in all of this. Pray for the ministries of this church. I want to say thank you to Ralph A. for helping coordinate a special prayer vigil that will occur just before Easter. April 13 and 14, I believe, are our dates here. And you'll be invited into a special prayer experience here at the church. So take time to pray and listen for God's voice and God's leading in all of this. When the time comes, give thanks for the abundance God has put in your life. And Give that commitment joyfully. That'll be later in May. But do that as an act of worship and as an act of thanksgiving. And then here's probably the hardest part of the homework. If 
Pastor Mark were to come to you today, just like my pastor did 30 years ago, and say to you, you know what? I'd love it if you'd get involved with this campaign, and specifically, I'd love it if you'd go out and talk with other members of our church and share your stewardship story. Guess what? He's not going to do that. Don't worry. But I want to ask you to at least consider your story. Give yourself permission to think about what is my stewardship story? What's my journey? Where am I? What's the next step for me? It's a really helpful task. If you're bold enough, share it with someone. (laughs) Talk about it at home. Maybe share it with a fellow member here at church. Consider your story. I'm going to leave you with one last thought here. Several years ago, someone offered a poem to me about, about stewardship. And it's a poem in which a man is wrestling with an angel in a dream over his giving. And the poem goes a bit like this. The angel says, Withhold not the gospel from souls needing bread, for giving is living, the bright angel said. The man responds, oh, And must I be giving and giving again? My peevish and pitiless answer ran. Oh no, said the angel, thus piercing me through. Just give till the Savior stops giving to you. Just give till the Savior stops giving to you. God blesses us new each day with so much in our lives, our time, our abilities, financial resource, and calls us to live in that joyful faith relationship with Him. How do you want to respond? Thanks be to God for that opportunity to consider. Amen.